I'm Daniel Lowe on behalf of Plaintiff Appellant Rajaro. Uh, I'd like to reserve four minutes for rebuttal. This case presents a legal question of statutory interpretation involving plain statutory language and an accompanying Supreme Court decision construing the same language of the statute. The language is unambiguous and because of that it is unnecessary and inappropriate to rely on legislative history to interpret the statute. There are at least five reasons that the statute is unambiguous in protecting U.S. citizens from citizenship discrimination. First, Section 1981 provides that all persons have the same right to make and enforce contracts as is enjoyed by white citizens. The phrase all persons could not be more broad and necessarily includes U.S. citizens. Nowhere in the statute do the words non-citizen or alien appear. Right, but your client does have the same right to make and enforce contracts as is enjoyed by white citizens, right? So your objection is that non-citizens have a more favorable right, but isn't there a straightforward textual argument that the statute is being complied with, right? Because he comes within the meaning of all persons, but he can't say that he doesn't have the same right as white citizens, can he? He certainly can. And if you look at the McDonald decision, they construed the equivalent language in addressing race relations or racial discrimination where the McDonald court found that the provision protecting discrimination applied to protect whites from racial discrimination. That's not a plain words argument. It seems to me that neither side can do very well with a plain words argument in this statute. Essentially, as I understand McDonald, it's mainly was relying on the history of the statutory evolution, not partly a little bit on legislative history of what people said, but more than that on the evolution of the history of the statute, which clearly was race neutral at the beginning because it said every citizen, no matter race or color or whatever. And in fact, it originally did not even have the asses enjoyed by white citizens and that was added in the Senate. So the history of it seems plainly to show that the 1866 statute was meant to apply without regard to whether it was a white or a black person or someone else claiming under it. And that the 1970 statute was specifically not intended to change it. So there was a history specific to the race issue, which doesn't apply here. Is that right? There is some slightly different history for the 1870 act, certainly, Your Honor. But the McDonald court also did rely partly on the statutory text and structure stated in its opinion and said that it was confirmed by the legislative history. I have a different question about, which is kind of a plain words argument about the statute. And that is that, as I understand it, the complaint here is that your client 
was not treated the same as a person who was um, a, a, an undocumented or a documented person, but, but not a citizen. So literally speaking, all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States shall have the same right. Uh, and in fact, what happened here was that um, non-citizens had better rights. I mean, the statute doesn't say whether there are better rights or worse rights. It says it has to be the same right. So the problem is that the non-citizens had better rights than white citizens. That's a statement of principle. It doesn't tell you who can bring the lawsuit. But as to whether the, the statement here that that all persons, um, uh, that, that non-citizens have to have, can't have better rights than white citizens, that statute seems to say that quite directly. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and the McDonald court uh, recognized that O'Connor- I'm not talking McDonald now. I'm talking the, the statute as written. As written, uh, yes, but the McDonald court expressly addressed that language. Well, I'm, this is an argument that favors you, so you might listen to it a little harder. Okay. <laughs> or it's a point yeah. that favors you, all right? Um, <laughs> which is that- you, everybody seems to be assuming that the all persons are the persons bringing a lawsuit, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case. This is a statement of principle that says that all persons are to be treated uh, the same as is enjoyed by white citizens. And your complaint is that some people, i.e. the uh, Indian HB1 visas, were treated better than people who enjoy, than white citizens. So all persons were not treated the same. Correct. That's right. Right. Yes, and, and the Safeway Court pointed out that the uh, white citizens was the benchmark against which uh, all rights were were judged, uh, and that all all persons should have uh, those same rights as the uh, benchmark, and that they should not be treated uh, better or worse. And your complaint is that some persons are being treated better than white citizens. Correct. Yeah. And the statute says that all persons are supposed to be treated the same. Right. As by citizens. Based on citizenship. Yes. What's your answer to the uh, the argument that uh, you know in the 1870 Act, you know, this language was in Section 16, and then Section 17, the criminal penalties um, for violations of, of Section 16 applied. You know. You know, to uh, you know, punish deprivations of the right uh, guaranteed in Section 16, um, you know, by reason of color or race, which is you know, sort of symmetrical, uh, or on account of such person being an alien, which appears to apply in only one direction. Uh, and so, you know, the two provisions should be read sort of, you know, in pari materia, and that suggests that the, uh, the sort of symmetry identified in McDonald with respect to race um, maybe doesn't apply uh, with respect to uh, you know, alienage or citizenship. Uh, how, how do you answer that? Uh, I, I think it's quite the opposite that uh, it shows that when Congress intended uh, to limit protections to aliens, it, it knew how to do so uh, and specified as such in Section 17, but not in Section 16. Right, and, but is there is there any conceivable theory of why they would have wanted the the seventeen criminal prohibition to be different from the sixteen right? 
Well, if you look at Section 17, the first part applies the same protections. And then it's just the second part related to different punishment, pains, or penalties on account of such person being an alien. And it's not clear from legislative history why that was, but presumably it's because no legislature was going to have higher penalties on citizens where they didn't anticipate as such. Going back to the statutory text, the McDonald's court construed the phrase as enjoyed by white citizens and found that that emphasized the nature of the rights being protected. Well, it said the racial nature, so that doesn't help you very much. It did say the racial nature, but it certainly can be applied to the word citizen. I mean, there the court was construing the word white as finding that it applied to the racial nature of the rights being protected. And the parallel reading of the word citizen is that it emphasizes the citizenship nature of the rights being protected. And if the court had intended to limit the protections of Section 1981 to aliens or non-citizens, it could have easily done so by saying that aliens shall have the same rights as white citizens or that non-citizens shall have the same rights as citizens, but it did not do so. The Supreme Court in the Bostock case examined a similar statutory interpretation situation and stated there's no canon of donut holes that when a statute protects a broad category, the failure to explicitly reference one group within that category does not create a tacit exception. And here, the reference to all persons is the broad category and the failure to explicitly reference U.S. citizens does not create a tacit exception based on that canon or absence thereof. Looking at the case law, there's only one case that grounds its decision in the statutory language at issue, which was the Jimenez case, which found that U.S. citizens are protected from citizenship discrimination. I will reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Goldman? Yes, Your Honor. I want to respond. I want to start by responding to some of the questions the court presented to Mr. Lowe. The language of the statute is tricky because this is a very old statute. And so consistently in construing it, the courts have looked at, Judge Berzon is correct, have looked at the way in which that language evolved and they have looked very extensively at the legislative history. So the statute started out as the 1866 Act, right? And what Congress was doing in the 1866 Act was it was making freed slaves into citizens and then said all citizens shall enjoy the same rights as white citizens. So there was a symmetry there because what the court was trying, what Congress was trying to do was to ensure that newly freed slaves who are now citizens would have the same rights as white citizens. 
1870 Act, as the court Although noted. McDonald concluded that it ran in the other direction as well. And the original statute was very clear about that because it said all persons, all citizens of every race or color. Um, and the legislative history from the 1866 Act was very clear about the fact that there was um, a, um, that they, it applied to white people as well. So we have much more data with regard to the race issue than we do on the citizenship issue. That's exactly right, Your Honor, and that's dispositive here. So what the court did in, in McDonald was it went through every last scrap of the legislative history of the 1866 Act and said over and over again, the members of Congress who were talking about this statute recognized that it was intended to apply equally to people of all races, that people of all races could bring claims under this statute. There is nothing in the legislative history of the 1870 Act, which was intended to protect immigrants. So that the 1870 Act made clear that all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States could bring claims under the statute. But the question is what they can- Could you address my, my reading, suggested reading, that the statute does not say anything about who can bring a lawsuit. That's not what it's addressing. It's addressing a principle. It does. It, it, everybody is assuming that the all persons are the person who can bring the case, but it doesn't say that. Um, so if you read it literally as a principle, um, the it, but it says that all persons within the jurisdiction shall have the same right, i.e., not a better right and not a worse right. Um, and so if some of these persons, i.e., these um, Indian immigrants with HB1 visas, um, non-citizens have better rights, that violates the plain text of the statute. The better does, rights of white citizens, doesn't, doesn't it? It does not, Your Honor, because what, the, because what the statute does is it says all persons can bring suits. And then the latter... It doesn't say that. It says all persons within jurisdiction of the United States shall have the same right in every state or territory to make and enforce contracts. Um, as is enjoyed by white citizens. It says nothing about who can bring suit. Right, but the question is, who's a protected class under the statute? Because the courts have been very, very clear in construing all of the anti-discrimination statutes that you have to look at who's a protected class. And what the Fifth Circuit said in Chaffetz is that citizens, U.S. citizens, are not a protected class vis-a-vis -vis aliens under this statute. And they're not, because you have to look at the structure and the evolution of the statute. There is nothing in the right, history. Right, but, uh, I mean, I, I take your point on the history, but I, I, you know, I have the same question, Judge, as Judge Berzon, about the text, which is, um, I mean, there, there does seem to be a fairly straightforward textual argument that uh, the, the same means the same, right? I mean, if it, you, you want to read the same as, you know, at least as good as, uh, which which would seem to track uh, what Congress had in mind, but the, the words they used are the same. And if, you know, if A is the same as B, then B is the same as A. And uh, the, the allegation in the complaint is that um, all persons uh, do not, in fact, have the same rights uh, to contract as is enjoyed by white citizens because uh, the, the H-1B visa holders have a more favorable right. Right, I mean, so, um, I, I guess 
maybe where I'm going with this is, is for, for you to prevail, you, you need us to um, do something other than follow that plain textual uh, reading, don't you? Well, yes, Your Honor. I, well, no, actually, no, I don't, because you still have to consider the structure of, of the statute and what the statute was intended to do, because what the plaintiff is asking you to do here is to find a new right that nobody has ever found before in a statute that's been around since, since 1870. So if you look at the text of the statute, race and citizenship are not the same thing. So the statute doesn't sort of set up an automatic reverse discrimination model the way that Mr. Lowe is arguing it does. What it does is it says all persons shall have shall enjoy the same rights as white citizens. Whites means all races. And citizens means citizens. Citizens doesn't mean that aliens can't be given privileges that aren't given to citizens. That's just not in the structure of the statute. And in fact, Congress said when it was passing the Immigration Reform and Control Act that the reason it was doing that was that no statute on the books prevented discrimination in employment on the basis of U.S. citizenship. And this court said the same and, thing. And of course, they were wrong about that because the statute does provide, in, in one direction at least, by your um, understanding, uh, protection um, from uh, of aliens from citizenship discrimination. So they, they, for whatever reason, were not clear on that point. Well, there's a difference. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. There's a difference between discrimination on the basis of alienage, which is what this court found was protected in Sagana, and discrimination on the basis of U.S. citizenship. Right, but the the court, but the legislature, the Congress in 1988 seemed to say that there was no coverage in either direction, and they were wrong about that. No, it, 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 well, in... It didn't say quite that. It said there was no cause of action for discrimination on the basis of U.S. citizenship. And it said it wasn't clear, which it wasn't in 1985. They said it wasn't clear whether there was a cause of action for alienage. That cause of action wasn't recognized until 1998 when the Second Circuit decided Anderson. So, but even, I mean, even, even so, I mean, I guess that's you know, the, the, the views of Congress on the question of, you know, what is the state of the law in the 1980s or you know, maybe entitled, maybe entitled to some respect, but still, you know, Congress in the 1980s cannot dictate what the statute passed in uh, the 1860s and 1870s means, can it? Well, you're looking at 150 years of interpreting the statute and finding that it allows all persons to sue over race discrimination and sue, and permits aliens to sue over alienage. But there's nobody ever saying that it permits U.S. citizens to say that they were treated worse than aliens. That right is found in the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which Congress enacted because there was no cause of action for U.S. citizens to claim discrimination on the basis of their citizenship anywhere else in federal law. Well, actually, they were much more motivated by the fact that they thought there was no alienage coverage. I mean, that that was really the concern. The white citizen, the white people, the uh, citizens complaining about um, preferences of aliens, you know, may have gone along with it, but that wasn't what the concern was. That was motivating the 1988 statute. 
Well, it was part of the concern. Well, it, was it was a very minor part of the concern. Okay, but, Your Honor, but this court said the same thing in 1995 when it decided general dynamics and it explained the ERCA statutory scheme. And it said that that statute came into play because it created a cause of action that was not otherwise covered in federal anti-discrimination laws. Now, the issue here is that Mr. Lowe is assuming... I mean, the actual problem here is that the 1988 Act didn't exactly create a cause of action. It was all an administrative action. And that's why these people... I mean, MEDA has, in fact, been found to have done exactly what is being alleged here, but in, a, in a, an administrative proceeding in which they were fined, as I understand it. Not quite, Your Honor. Meta settled with DOJ. Right. Um, DOJ right. has, has a proceeding which does not allow, which, but there is not a private action for damages. Is that right? Right. But when Congress creates an administrative scheme and an administrative remedy and does not create a private right of action, that's the whole reason for the court not to imply one in a statute that's been on the books for 150 years. I mean, the, I'd like to go back to my posit about, uh, and Judge Miller's, about the, the, this statute being a, a declaration of a principle. Title VII, if you re read it, you know, reads the same way. It shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or discharge any individual or otherwise because of such individuals, race, color, religion, or national origin. Um, it, it, it's a, a two-way street, and it doesn't tell you who's bringing the lawsuit. This one doesn't either, as written. Well, no. This, this statute is structured very, very differently from Title VII and other modern anti-discrimination statutes. Yes, in any way, but as to this point, whether this is a declaration of a principle, a rule of, um, of non-discrimination that runs in both directions, which it appears to be because it says it's supposed to be the same, um, then it seems to me it is structured similarly. Um, and it isn't um, structured according to who is bringing, somebody has to be injured to bring a lawsuit to complain about this. These people say they're injured because they say they were not treated the same uh, and they were treated worse. Um, but it's not telling you, uh, it isn't defining in any way that one can see in the statute that the, these all persons have to be the people who are treated worse instead of the people who are treated better. Well, but a statute isn't, isn't just a raw principle. I mean, a statute, courts have focused consistently in construing this statute in particular on who can sue and what they can sue for. And they have said, for example, that Section 1981 does not protect against discrimination on the basis of national origin. So what the Fifth Circuit said in the Chaffetz case is that there is no distinction between a claim of discrimination based on citizenship and discrimination on the basis of, natural or of national origin. If you were born here, which this plaintiff was not, but if you are born here, you can't bring a claim under Section 1981 saying, I was discriminated against because I am from here, which is indistinguishable from a claim. It's not indistinguishable. It's very much distinguishable um, because the statute covers citizenship, but it doesn't cover nationality in terms on the, on the face of it. The statute says all persons shall enjoy the same right to contract as white citizens. It's not the same as Title VII, which makes it unlawful to discriminate, for example, because of sex. 
you know, that's very clear. If the statute said it was unlawful to discriminate because of alienage or because of citizenship, we might be having a different discussion. What it says, because it's so antiquated, is that all persons shall have the same right as white citizens. So it's not just creating a two-way ratchet in the way that Mr. Lowe is asking the court to adopt. Title VII is, is Sorry. So creating a principle, like on this, what we were calling the reading of it, is that, that, that it's a principle that all persons shall have the same right to contract as enjoyed by white citizens. And that reading, if you were to read it to say that that sets a baseline, what do we, what would you do with that set? In other words, you cannot, nobody, everybody has a right to get, uh, to be treated the same way as a white citizen would be, but would that necessarily follow from that that nobody can be treated better? I guess that's it. I'm still trying, I'm trying to figure out, like, if we were to read it in the, the way my two colleagues have, have mentioned, trying to figure out what comes from that, because it, when people have a right to something, oftentimes other people get treated better. The right usually prevents you from being treated worse than whatever the bench, whatever you have a right to, right? And so I'm trying to figure out what comes of that. In other words, I'm not sure that it actually creates a two-way that you, that, you, that you have to pull people that are being treated better down, even if you read it that way. That's, that's correct, Your Honor. It does not create that two-way symmetry. It's just not written in a symmetrical way. It's saying that all people have to be have to enjoy the so same rights. And what could not be treated. So uh, all persons. So in theory, a citizen couldn't be treated worse than 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 the average citizen gets. I guess, or than, than whatever that baseline is. And a non-citizen couldn't be treated treated um, worse either. But that wouldn't prevent um, somebody from being treated better, I guess. But you'd have to figure out what that baseline is, and then you, you could people could be treated better by a company, I guess, I think, under that reading. I'm not entirely sure I follow, but I think what the court is saying is that white citizens forms a baseline. But then how, how do you make sense of McDonald? I mean, you, you've, you, you've pointed out correctly that there's a, a good deal of discussion of the legislative history in McDonald, and, uh, but McDonald also said that its reading of the statute was based on the text. And I don't understand textually how you account for the result in McDonald. How I account for the- Yeah, I mean, I, 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 the way you want us to read the text, how, how does McDonald make any sense? Well, McDonald makes sense because the court said any ambiguity is resolved by looking at legislative history, which it then right. goes to for, for 10 pages but they said that after, I mean, after they said that they uh, thought it was the better reading of the text. And it seems like um, your position must be, you know, they were wrong about the text, uh, but but right about the legislative history. Um, Not exactly, Your Honor. What they said was that the text was ambiguous and you had to look at the history, which every court, I mean, no court has ever found a right under Section 1981 that was not rooted in the evolution of the language and the legislative history. Never. I mean, there's no case. Every single By the way, Julian, there, there was one comment during you know, legislative history with regard to the 1870 Act where a legislator said something like adding this um, all persons and it was clearly to reach aliens. I mean, that you agree with. They were clearly trying to protect aliens. 
Yes, right. the purpose of the 1870 okay. acquisition. And, and, and then he says, but but we, and, and for example, we don't want aliens from Prussia being treated better than aliens from, I forget what he said, but let's say Greece. Um, and that would suggest, again, a, a flat principle that, because in that instance, he wasn't saying that they were treating aliens better than citizens. He was treating some aliens better than other aliens. So, in other words, it was based on what they were, where they were citizens of, um, but not that they were being treated better than aliens in general. So that that's the one place that I found that there was, you know, some understanding um, different from what you're saying at the time. I understand that that kind of legislator, his history of one person saying something is not all that um, favored these days, but nonetheless, there does seem to have been somebody who understood it as running that way. I want to go back to what the court, is, I mean, that was one straight comment and it didn't suggest anything about protecting United States citizens. There's literally nothing in the history or the structure of the 1870 Act about protecting U.S. citizens. But I want to go back to what the court was asking about Section 18, Section 17 of the 1870 Act, because I think that's very important. Um, the plaintiff argues in his reply brief, he makes an argument about the classic case, and he says that it was construing Section 16. It wasn't. That court was construing a different provision, Section 19. This court needs to look at 16 and 17 because this court held in uh, the Otherson case, United States versus Otherson, 637 F. 2nd, 1276, that 16 and 17 need to be read together, that they need to be construed harmoniously. And reading them harmoniously means that what the statute means is it, it you can't impose a greater punishment because of either of two protected characteristics. One is race and the other is alien status. Neither is citizenship. So section 17 specifically refers to alien status, which is what section 16 and what it, now the 1981 Act is all about. It's about protecting aliens against discrimination on the basis of being aliens. If every statute had this reverse discrimination built in, then a statute that uh, said pregnant people have to be treated the same as um, as as non-pregnant people would have to be read to protect non-pregnant people. A statute that says that you can't discriminate against old people would mean that you couldn't treat old people better than young people. And well, you can't. It's, 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 I mean, th th there is a case about that, as I'm sure you know. Um, uh, you know General Dynamics Land Systems uh, about the ADEA. And you know, the, the wording is different, right? So the, the wording of the statutes matters, right? And there it was, the statutory prohibition was against discrimination because of an individual's age. Um, and, you know, that, the, the court said, well, you could read that to mean, you know, age could mean, you know, how old is a person, or it could mean, you know, the condition of being old. Um, and they said, you know, we're, we're going with the second. But, and there was but, a definition in the statute. But, right. No. But, uh, but, you know, this is a statute that doesn't say discrimination on account of, you know, some particular characteristic. It says, you know, have to be treated the same, right? That is, so the difference in wording matters, doesn't it? The difference in wording actually, I think, cuts in our favor here, right? Because if you said you can't discriminate, that otherwise we—that's what makes this case different from from Bostock, 
postdoc said because of sex means because of sex. So discrimination against people on the basis of their transgender status or their sexual orientation is discrimination because of sex. This statute doesn't say because of citizenship, right? It says all citizens should, all persons should enjoy the same rights as white citizens. So that's sufficiently unclear that you have to look at what this statute has always been held to protect. Okay, can I ask you one, go back to McDonald just once more. So the you know, the, the court said, you know, our, examina our examination of the language and history of 1981 uh, convinces us that 1981 is applicable to racial discrimination um, in private employment against white persons. Then, you know, the next paragraph, we cannot accept the view that the terms of 1981 exclude its application to racial discrimination against white persons. And they go through that for a couple more sentences and then say, you know, whatever ambiguity there may be in the language is clarified by the legislative history. And, they talk about the legislative history, but um, it, it, it seems like your argument is that the terms of 1981 do exclude. I mean, if we take the logic of your argument and, and apply it to the racial context, you would be saying that the terms of 1981 do exclude its application to racial discrimination against white persons, wouldn't you? No, I would say that the court found it necessary to examine the history of the statute and what it was intended to protect. And the court wouldn't have found it necessary to do that had the court believed that it just created a two-way ratchet as to race and citizenship. It, it just doesn't. And it, that's why the court went through this exhaustive discussion of the history, which, which this court did in Saginaw which uh, the Supreme Court did in St. Francis, you know, all of these cases, including cases uh, in the 2000s, all went through this exhaustive analysis of what the statute was enacted to do and what, what the, 1870, in the 1866 Act was enacted to protect all races. Nobody can really argue with that. The 1870 Act was not. The 1870 Act was enacted to give the protections of the 1866 Act to aliens. That was the purpose of that, of that statute. And, and that is undisputed. I mean, Mr. Lowe doesn't really dispute that. So the court, it would have just been surplusage for the court to go on about the structure and history of, of the statute if it thought the language was dispositive. Except that this was an opinion written quite a long time ago when the um, notion that one has to stick to the language and nothing else was not prevalent and the notion instead was that you looked at everything available. So the fact that the statute um, was uh, viewed as sufficiently clear didn't mean that there wasn't a belt and suspenders approach to proving it up. Well, we would submit that that every case that has found any sort of right in section 1981 has grounded that in, in the history. That there are no cases saying that this is just clear, ordinary, modern statutory language and, and it's just obvious. Thank, thank you, Ms. Goldman. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Love, you have about uh, four minutes. The, uh, even though the pur main purpose uh, of the statute when it was passed was to protect Chinese aliens, uh, courts have repeatedly found that the main purpose 
of legislation is not what governs. It is rather the text of the statute, and here the text is much broader. Significantly, in McDonald, the court recognized the immediate impetus of the statute was to protect freed slaves, but it had no problem recognizing that it applied to all races. Here, there's nothing in the legislative history indicating that Congress intended for the statute to only apply to aliens. And there's language recognizing that Congress intended to provide equal protection to all persons. And in the Bostock Supreme Court case, the court stated that it was irrelevant whether Congress had anticipated a particular application of a statute when it was passing the law. In that case, involved the protection of gay and transgender employees who were not the primary focus of the statute, but were encompassed within the protections of the law. Mehta tries to argue that the statute has been consistently interpreted as not protecting U.S. citizens, but there has not been a great deal of case law on the issue. There are two holdings supporting the application to U.S. citizens, the Jimenez and Hernandez decisions. And most of the cases cited by Mehta are either factually not on point or are dicta, with the exception of Chaffetz and Weyenhofer, neither of which ground their decisions in the text of the statute. Chaffetz relied on the plaintiff's argument that he was bringing a reverse alienage discrimination claim, and then the court analyzed and interpreted the term alienage, which is not anywhere in the statute. And the Weyenhofer court relied on what Second Circuit precedent had previously found. There were three cases cited where the allegedly favored class was U.S. citizens, and the plaintiffs were also U.S. citizens. So as a factual matter, those plaintiffs could not bring citizenship discrimination claims, and those were the Jatoy, Mack, and Vaughn cases. So the suggestion in the brief that Monessen requires an interpretation based on an acquiescence by Congress and interpretation by the courts, it doesn't make sense just because there's only a couple courts that have addressed the issue, only one circuit court, and never the Supreme Court. Looking at the statutory text, if it is viewed as a declaration of rights rather than a statement of who can bring suit under the statute, one point to note is that there's no limitation in the statute on who can bring suit, or the alternative interpretation would be that all persons are entitled to bring suit, one or the other. That's all, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We thank both counsel for their arguments and wish you a good evening in the Eastern Time Zone. The case is submitted and we are adjourned. Thank you, Your Honor. This court for this session stands adjourned.